0: So I brought Jason Cohen onto my podcast because of my sincere curiosity about how to use AI in terms of human perception as it applies to the food and beverage industry. Now, as some of you may know, I have been in the flavors and fragrance industry for about 20 years, for which a lot of our flavors serve the food and beverage industry. And so it was a super, super exciting, geeky interview. However, there is a lesson here that I really think you need to hone in on. And while he talks about AI using better, more relevant data in order to predict consumer behaviors, think about it in terms of leadership. Think about it in terms of employee satisfaction. When we do surveys about employee engagement and satisfaction in the workplace, it is a lagging indicator. It is too late. The perceptions of what people are thinking about leaders and culture and benefits, etc., are already instilled, for which it is hard to turn the ship. And yes, we can use this information, but it's noisy. It's late. And perhaps not the best way to be able to have a positive impact on human perception and creating an experience. Might we, instead, measure leading indicators by how many times do you actually meet with your employees and discuss their challenges or career development opportunities? Or how many times does that employee come to you with a proposal or a new idea versus knocking on your door and saying, do you got a minute? And they got a big hairy problem. All of these are leading indicators that get rid of the noise and the negative perceptions, but you then have a lens into actually what humans are thinking, why they're behaving, and you can make course corrections, predictions, and changes for the future. So while this is an amazing interview with Jason Cohen, and I really love, love the technology that he is offering, there are a lot of leadership insights that you can glean from this conversation. Let's listen.
1: AI for food and beverage has recently become a more heavily invested in area, but the majority of it is on social listening, using information of chatter, things on social networks, sales analytics, or trend forecasting. Some of it is on things like menu trends. So when, when a restaurants change their menus, that is a legitimate source of new preference acquisition, but it's very noisy data. We don't see any direct competition on the technology side on thinking through, can we collect massive amounts of data on human-sensory perception and then use it to build feature-based learning onto preferences? No one else has the product optimization abilities that we have. No one else has the proprietary data set that we have, of course. But that means that they don't know the differences between what's driving preferences in different markets. In opening up a new area of AI for product development, I think we've been at the forefront for a long time.
0: If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb ELO, founder of the Drop-In CEO brand, and I am so grateful you have joined us on another episode of the podcast where week after week I get to speak to really, really Amazing people, and they share their insights and inspiration with you. And if you do like this episode, I sincerely hope you do. Please rate, review, share with others so we can continue to bring you more amazing guests. And just know I care about you deeply out there. For the C suite leaders of today and tomorrow, I'm here to support you to get control of your careers while you're navigating your business opportunities. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce today Jason Cohen. Before starting Gastrograph AI, Jason was the founder and executive director of the Tea Institute at Penn State, which oversees 20-plus researchers in five fields of study in traditional Chinese, Japanese, and Korean tea. Jason did his research in sensory science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, eventually developing Gastrograph AI after three and a half years of research. Jason. Is a professional coffee, tea, and beer taster. And when he is not trying new products, oh my, he enjoys rock climbing, ice climbing, and fencing. Oh my, can't wait to hear more about that. Jason, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I am so excited to bring this interview forward. You know, I come from the flavors and fragrance industry for the past 20 years, and I have a sincere, sincere appreciation for flavorists. And perfumist, because there is an art form to create a human experience through the sensory sciences. But Jason comes to us with something a little different, a little disruptive. And you know me, I love things that disrupt and go against the status quo, for which he has an amazing story and an amazing product and service that supports others. So you have the floor. Please share with us a little bit about yourself more personally your journey, and the amazing, amazing work you're doing now.
1: Well, thanks, Deb. So a little little bit about me. I started as a professional tea taster. That is a, a real job. Spent a whole bunch of time in mainland China, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, and then went to Penn State University, where I started a tea research group. And like everything I touched, that spiraled out of control and became an interdisciplinary tea research institute called the Tea Institute of Penn State. And so I started doing research on how do I quantify what people are tasting? How do I know what people like and dislike? And I started in in the field of sensory science, which is a science that studies that. But I I was unhappy with the math. I was unhappy with the tools and the techniques that they were using. And so I said, well, there's all these new techniques in machine learning, artificial intelligence. This should be predictive. There should be a way that we could actually take data and then use that data to make predictions about the future that come true. And so I moved me and all my research over to machine learning and artificial intelligence and we started to work round up to build models to actually predict what people were going to taste and like and dislike. And we did that for just about four years. And when everything started to work, we could actually make predictions around what people were going to taste. We realized it didn't belong in academia anymore. We spun it out of the university. I hired off the three top researchers from the Research Institute. And we all started analytical flavor systems together. And so that research started way back in 2009. It feels like I've been doing this for a long time. It became a company in June 2013. And at that point, we had no idea what we were doing we we're all a bunch of academics we we're all quite young and so it literally took 2 years to go from from research to a, to a usable enterprise product 2 years of bootstrapping that was an experience that i am happy to have had but would not willingly repeat
0: so jason i could go in so many different directions but let's just go back a little bit as you are enjoying your tea right now how did you get into tea tasting Beer tasting, coffee tasting, where did that all come from?
1: So, when I, it was a tradition on my father's side of the family to be sent abroad in high school. He lived in Spain under Franco and then in Mexico. And so they said to me, Where, where do I want to go? I said, China. They said, uh, I was very young and I started college, university very early. But they, so I said, China. They said, No, somewhere a little easier. So I went to Italy, Institute to get a and studied. International business and Renaissance art history. And then I came back and they said, Where do you want to go? And I said, China. And they said, Fine. So in, in 2007, I went to Yunnan Dashway, Yunnan Normal University, originally to study politics. Turns out blonde hair, blue eyes, bad Chinese didn't really endear me to asking about the government. So I wound up spending a whole bunch of time in the tea market. And I was just being quizzed with these older gentlemen who I, who I was sitting with, like, What does this tea taste like? Where do you think this tea is from? And it, it turned out that they were all ex CNN the communist era tea conglomerate that owned all of the tea production in China, particularly the queer production from the cultural revolution onward. And so I wound up getting a crash course in it and I got very, very interested in it. So then the, the following year, I went to live on Makabari Tea Plantation in India to pick and harvest my own tea. And then I went back to China to do some additional research and work. So it was all a series of happy accidents. And I went to Penn State University, originally assuming that I was going to be in political science. I went on a political science fellowship to do research in political science, which I never wound up doing. I wound up doing all of my work in tea and flavor.
0: Amazing. Tell me more. What do you mean happy accident? Are these things planned or life just took its turns and twists and you went with it? What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it, it was all small decisions that made sense at the time. There was no... In the early days, there was no strategic, I'm going to do this, which is going to lead to that, which is going to end here. And, and really, there couldn't have been. I, you know, When we talk about tea, coffee, and beer, so originally, all of our data was tea because we were running a tea research institute and we had people who were interested in tea and we would have them taste tea and we collect our data. But getting American University students fully trained and up and running on tea tasting and getting them to show up for tea tastings was, was relatively difficult. So we started collecting coffee data. People were more familiar with coffee. It was easier to get a range of different coffee products. We could test that against market results. There was easier to verify ground truths and other data and other work we could rely on. There was more publications about coffee. So we started having them taste coffee. And now the data was higher quality, but people still didn't always show up for coffee tastings. And so then we started hosting beer tastings. And at at Penn State, if you host free beer tastings, you don't have a data problem. People people show up for those. (laughs) And so (laughs) these were were just all steps that made sense in the moment. And, you know, from where the company starts, what, what the company does now. So we have an AI platform that models human sensory perception of flavor, aroma, and texture to predict consumer preference of food and beverage products. And we help large multinational food and beverage companies develop new products, optimize existing brands, and enter new markets, all from the perspective of making better tasting, more targeted products for specific consumers around the world. We always say more diverse products for a more diverse world, right? It used to be that you could create a singular product and sell it regionally, nationally, or even internationally, but that's no longer true. People will expect products that appeal to them. The ability to produce products, to get it onto the shelf, to distribute it, the rate of acquisition of new preferences is so much different now than it was even in the 90s or early 2000s with the rise of direct consumer brands and targeted marketing and specific marketing channels and, and interest in health and wellness related channels. It has allowed for new preference acquisition to really bifurcate around people's independent preferences. And so now you see brands where it used to be maybe a singular flavor was, was normal, right? And now brands have to launch with three or four or five different flavors. Each one targeted a different consumer cohort or a different demographic niche. And so you know, what I think is most amazing about this journey and, and linking it back to, to my work in tea and, and how that evolved is that our technology has certainly evolved, it's improved, it's grown, but the core technology, the ability to measure flavor and then to predict how different consumers are going to perceive it and from that to predict their preferences has never changed. So I maintain that we've never pivoted. The, this has been you know, a series of, of happy accidents and small decisions that made sense at the time, but the, the one underlying unifying straight arrow has been how do we use this technology to create things that people are going to enjoy more products that people actually will like that people products that people actually want to buy and products that are actually targeted at them
0: you know what i love about what you said early on from a leadership perspective is that sometimes you just don't know what you want to be when you grow up but if you stay true to your passions what you're good at and your values making small decisions along the way sometimes do lead you down whatever path you're meant to go And what I really love also is that you're in the business of assuring that you remain diverse to all people's needs, wants, desires, and that change is a constant for which data, the power of data, and the ability to mine that data quickly can help you make better decisions in a constantly changing environment, demographics, new markets, new technology, new flavors entering the market your technology can enable us to make those decisions a lot faster. Now, I have to ask you this burning question. There are amazing people out there that already do this work. You've got the flavorists, the perfumists, all those people that have been trained for many years to do this work, but this is somewhat disruptive or complementary to that work. What do you say?
1: I think it is both. I think the major CPG companies, the major food and beverage Companies and brands have, at this point, to a large extent, outsourced their development work, their formulation work, to the flavor houses. flavor houses have some of the most skilled developers in the world. All the flavor houses claim to be the best at using their flavors, but there are challenges. The challenge is that all of the flavor houses claim that, that they know what consumers like because they are producing the flavors and they can see what's selling, and what's not selling, and how much of the flavors that they're moving.
0: But that's a lagging indicator. That's a lagging indicator.
1: It's a lagging indicator, and it's never been true because product failure rates for new product development are still upwards of 80-something percent. So, you know, of course, they can see what's selling. That doesn't mean that it's going to sustain that levels of sales. It doesn't mean it's going to sustain that level of success for any amount of time. You know, there's a 15% year on year product failure rate for products that have been on the market for more than 3 years. So and we've seen massive declines in legacy products. So on the way that the flavor houses operate, right? They are truly they are commodity companies that trade flavors with each other, right? Two major flavor houses can synthesize some of the most amazing flavors. They can synthesize flavors that don't exist in nature. They can synthesize flavors that are too rare or expensive to harvest manually, right? They are some of the best chemical engineers in the world. What they are not is they are generally not data scientists. They are not machine learning experts. And they're not building predictive models to actually look at the perceptions and to build feature-based learning on those perceptions. So when we think of a flavorist, right, someone still has to know how to achieve that target flavor. What our AI is doing is it's, it's pointing at the target. And, you know, you, you could think of this as, I hate to go there, but to quote Steve Jobs, right, the computer is the bicycle of the mind. As computers have gotten more advanced and as AI is becoming more and more advanced, Right, there's going to be certain jobs that can be done by humans and should be done by humans. Flavorists, the ability to formulate, the ability to develop, the ability to pick specific keys and to to get a product into formulation is very important. There's things that the AI doesn't know or or doesn't care about, right? The the AI is not trained on things like, say, stability or shelf life. On the other hand, right, if you are most of the flavor houses here in the US are based on a corridor in New Jersey. Right. If you're a flavorist and you're from New Jersey, you grew up in New Jersey, and you're developing products for the rest of the entire United States, let alone, right, the rest of North America with Canada and Mexico, or the rest doing products that are going to go to a totally different demographic, you can't perceive past your experiences and your genetics, right? If you have a flavorist, say, you know, a highly trained, you know, wonderful flavorist, say African American, who's then tasked with developing a product. For another demographic in the United States, say Asian American, right? Their experiences don't translate. And so the use, of AI, the use of AI gives them real-time feedback. It gives them access to the information that they would normally have to go to, back to a consumer panel for. So basically they get real-time consumer guided feedback so that they can actually develop something that the target consumer is going to love, not just that their experience tells them is, is good or bad. Because their experience is not what determines the success of that product.
0: So I know a lot of flavor houses, both large and medium size, but I want to know, first of all, whoever eventually listens to this podcast, we want to only connect you with those that are early adopters that understand the value of this technology. But I want to hear from you. Can you give us a profile of those entities that have said, yes, this makes sense to complement with what we're doing?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give maybe two and a half or three examples. So. The first is that we predominantly work with the brand owners. We mostly work with the food and beverage companies themselves, and frequently those those CPG companies will say, "Can you go work with our development partner X to develop this product that you predicted will will succeed?" And we are happy to work with any development partner. Some of them play nicely with us. Some of them think of us as bad cop, which I think is very misguided because we're there. You know, we have the same aim: make the product successful. We'll help figure out what it should taste like. We'll help figure out the overall profile and, and it within any constraints. And then the flavor house, you know, if that product is successful, if we can help them make it more successful, they'll win more briefs, they'll sell more flavors, which will go on into a longer lifespan product. So, you know, I, I really think that, and some flavor houses now understand that we've worked together multiple times. So some are much more friendly to us than others. Others still see us as bad cops. On the other side, you know, one of the differences I can really draw is the difference in experience and expectations around artificial intelligence between, say, the United States and Asia, particularly China. In the United States, you know, the questions that we get around our AI is, how do we know it works? Do you have any validation? Do you have proof? How can we trust it? How can we understand why the AI is making decisions? And we have good answers to all of those questions, right? We've undergone double-blind validation studies. We've done massive amounts of work on characterizing the AI and where it learns and how it learns. But those are all very much AI skeptic-driven questions, right? Questions around, why can I trust the technology? How do I know I can trust the technology? In China, the questions are, how big, is your, how big are your servers, right? If we scale up from starting with 10 products, can you handle 600 new products per year? Are you going to be able to give us twenty four hours support? Are you going to be able to have any support and resources in China? Are you going to be able to handle additional developments across different categories that we're focused in? And it's all very expansion questions. It's very operational question.
0: Opportunistic versus being risk averse.
1: Exactly. And it's I think it's driven twofold, right? I think one is that the experience of AI is much more day to day. It's much more at the consumer level in China. To walk into buildings, your face gets scanned, when the gate goes red or green, when you're applying for things through you know, Tencent or Alipay, it's all AI and algorithmic, right? The, the population is large enough that very few people expect personalized things. They expect to be bucketed through AI. And so the experience of using AI is much more... In the United States, sometimes we talk about the consumerization of enterprise technology, that enterprise technology now needs to be more friendly. It needs to feel more like the apps that people use in their free time at home, right? And, you know, consumer apps have gone, uh, enterprise apps have gone from kind of kludgy and slow and people being an understanding of odd workflows. So now they expect very streamlined things. You could look at Slack, right? And Slack is, it looks like a consumer app, but it's used by major enterprises now owned by Microsoft. In China, right, AI feels like that. It feels real, it feels tangible, and it feels it's already taking over the world. So when we think about, you know, what our early adopters look like, we we do quite a bit of our work in Asia, but there's certainly a difference between companies that remain AI skeptic and companies that remain highly, highly open to the adaptation and the use of new technology.
0: So amazing. And it's so interesting. I'm learning so much about the differences in culture, cultural acceptance about new technology and the opportunity or a threat that some see. But let's just turn a little bit to you before we go more into the technology that you offer because again, I found it so cool. You are the CEO of the company. You somehow were very persistent in the first two years bringing it from academia to something that was viable to now, struggles. You've had successes, you've had struggles. You're trying to get more exposure, et cetera. As a business owner, I want to understand what keeps you up at night. Either something positive, you're so jazzed, or what are the things that bother you as a business owner, as a viable company, to achieve the goals that you want?
1: Certainly. In the early days, learning how to raise capital and how to effectively manage capital was very new, right? I started off as a technologist. I built all of the original algorithms. I would like to still think of myself as a, as a pretty good generalist, you know. but I had no financial background. I had no business background. I had no prior experience achieving venture funding, or being in a venture-backed company. In fact, this is literally the only job I've ever had. So, <laughs> so I did the tea thing, right? But that was still with a fairly academic bent. So this was the only real you know, corporate-level job that I've ever had. And so going from running a research institute, which was a professional job, but it has, it has all of the downsides of running a company with none of the benefits, I came in fairly... Experienced at at managing people and building teams, and strategic large-scale goal setting, and you know we weren't we weren't afraid of having a longer time horizon than other companies or other people. Right? Most most companies never go through two years of bootstrapping just to to get the technology from research into a product. That's very unusual, you know. But certainly the thing that's kept me up the most throughout the lifespan of this company, from the early days till now is going from, you know, my, in my, my personal comfort zone of technology, of industry, of applications, of really, really of the science of it and the use of it and the value of it to the financial side. And, you know, thankfully, we've been able to hire, we've had great investors who are incredibly supportive, who, who you know, focus specifically on B2B enterprise, deep technology companies. And so are, are used to, to people like me. But also, you know, from we were also able to hire expertise, um, very experienced business expertise in order to help us manage those types of finances. That's not to say it's all been smooth, right? There's been (laughs) multiple market upturns and downturns since since we started. You know, the rug can get pulled out from under you at any time. But yeah, I would say certainly, you know, to any to any founders that, that come from a technology perspective and see a business opportunity and want to seize it, having good partners both inside the company and having, you know, great, be very, very careful of of the investors that you choose, because our investors have stood behind us the entire time. They maintain their investments, they reinvest in every round. That makes a huge difference for the health and the benefit of the company and also, you know, the, the sanity of the leadership.
0: I mean, what is so profound, and I talk about this so often about leaders, I see amazingly talented leaders, they have their core business, they've been able to be sustainable for some amount of time, and then they're Are changes in the business for which they look around the room and they realize they don't necessarily have the expertise for the change that's coming, whether it's financial business development opportunities, but sometimes they wait too long to pull the trigger for either fear or cost, et cetera. And those are the leaders that unfortunately may make their business go into some kind of chaos or crisis for which then when they do bring in that expertise, it takes a little bit longer and can be more costly. So kudos to you for having the vision to lead the company, but also the wisdom of bringing the right people in. But I want to just move one more time back over to the technology because you've been in existence since 2013. You've got a client base, but you also have some new technology to enhance what you're already doing. So tell us more about that.
1: We have two, I think, really exciting avenues of expanding the, the technology and expanding its applications. Right now, when companies come to us and they say, we want to develop a new food and beverage product. We want to develop a new low-fat, high-protein, probiotic, yogurt-based, non-dairy beverage for, say, Hispanic Americans in the Southwestern United States, right? Oh my... (laughs) Super specific. Then then the question is, right, that what we can do is we can target on age, sex, race, socioeconomic status, past-tasting experiences, and smoking habits. We can do any type of demographic factor, which is going to influence the genetics and the perceptual experiences of that target population, right? We've run large-scale, our own large-scale research. We have a proprietary database, 30-plus countries around the world, 45-plus regions. And so we actually have real consumer data from different population centers across the United States, California, Texas, Chicago, Atlanta, New York. And that database is what allows us to make those highly regional or highly specific predictions because you know from experience, the food that you eat in New York is quite different than the food you eat in California. And I'd say that the the food in New York tastes much better, right? We're not afraid of oils, fats, and salts.
0: No, it's different, but it's it's a different experience. I'm from Jersey and New York, oh my. But again, I appreciate the Midwest and the German food, the West Coast, Scots, it's new one, but it's different. It is. But you couldn't sell a sugar donut
1: on the West Coast, right? The types of products that, that succeed, um, the types of flavors that, that, are, that are widely accepted are, are actually quite different. And so going back to that example, when a company comes to us with a product like that, right now what we can do is we can target on those demographic factors. Only recently have we begun collecting enough behavioral data right? This person is a non-dairy consumer. This person is a diet soda consumer versus a full sugar consumer. This person eats potato chips. This person does not eat potato chips. And so with this new data set, being able to do not just demographic splits, but actually do behavioral cohorting is a brand new area for us. And that's really exciting because that bringing that psychographic into the AI allows for even more precise tuning of product profiles, product offerings, and, and new developments. That's the first one. The second one is texture. And anyone who works in this can tell you that texture is so much harder than flavor. Most of you know, if you have a potato chip, trying to change the texture of the potato chip is much harder than adding seasoning and turning it into a dill potato chip or into a, a salt and vinegar potato chip. So we've totally revamped our texture analysis. And we can now do much more robust optimizations and more robust constrained optimizations on texture. So if we were looking at variations in, say, types of oil or fry time on a chip, we would actually, the AI would actually be able to tune that in a way that's never before been possible.
0: Oh, this is amazing. I I love technology. And obviously, as a consumer, you know, that experience and the work that's done behind it is so, so valuable. So if I were to look ahead two to three years, where are you going to be? What's the plan for your company?
1: Well, we'll continue to approximately double every year, year over year. So right now we're at about 22 people. I hope we don't double headcount as we, as we continue to double revenue. But, you know, in two to three years, I think we could easily be at at 40 to 50 people. And really it's, you know, the investment is on the technology. It's on expanding the reach of the data. It's on collecting more data. It's on the ability to deliver these types of predictions faster. And I think the, the most exciting thing is right now, companies come to us when they want a new development. They come to us when they have a problem that needs to be solved. But part of what we want to do is we want them to put the power of the tool, of the AI, into their hands so that they can actually use it in an exploratory method, that they could start asking what-if questions. What if we fried this longer? What if we changed our oil? What if we added dill?
0: It's like a relationship that
1: they're trying to build with the technology. They're courting it. Exactly, exactly. And I think, I think that that's really an interesting area because, you know, one of the, one of the most interesting and surprising things that I've seen is it's not always the ideas that have the most funding and the most interest and the most support by major multinational food and beverage companies. It's frequently, you know, one product developer or one product marketer or or one brand manager in one of the regional offices who says, you know, I think that there would be a great idea if we were to if we were to put calamansi, which is a type of citrus fruit, and cayenne pepper on this product, right? And they might not have the resources to get budgeted against it, but with AI, right? There's no marginal cost to testing that idea. And then everyone speaking the same language, everyone trusts the same information. And when that product formulator comes up with that new great hundred million dollar a year potential product, right? They can then share it out with the rest of the company and everyone can say, you know, we, we wouldn't have come up with this, but through partnership, human intelligence and human intuition and the use of the AI, we were able to find things that, that otherwise would remain unfound or that maybe one of our competitors would have found.
0: Which was going to be my next question without disclosing. And again, competition is good. We learn from each other. Sometimes in the collaboration, we create something really good, but like, how do you compare to the competition in terms of capability?
1: AI for food and beverage has recently, long after we started, become a more heavily invested in area. Um, but the majority of it is on social listening. So, using, using information of chatter, things on social networks, sales analytics, or trend forecasting. Some of it is on things like menu trends. So, when, when a restaurants change their menus, that is a legitimate source of new preference acquisition, but it's very noisy data. And so, we don't see any direct competition operating the way that we operate. We don't see any direct competition on the technology side on thinking through, can we collect massive amounts of data on human sensory perception and then use it to build feature-based learning onto preferences? And so, you know, no one else has the product optimization abilities that we have. No one else has the proprietary data set that we have, of course, but that means that they don't know the differences between what's driving preferences in different markets. And so we, we certainly do see competition. We see competition on the conceptual side. You know, is it a good idea to make a low protein, high fat yogurt or is it a low fat, low protein yogurt? Right. Those are concept level questions that, that some, maybe some level of trend analysis and and competitive benchmarking can help. But I think that in opening up a new area of AI for product development, I think we've been at the forefront for a long time and. You know, I'm hoping our continued investments in technology will will, will keep us at the forefront.
0: So, Jason, I am so grateful for this conversation. I know you've been out and about trying to share this amazing technology at different conferences and interviews and media. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to also share your story and your amazing product with my audience as well. But before we bring this to a close, any last thoughts to anybody out there either on your journey or people that you really want? really want to connect with.
1: (laughs) Well we will we will be at EuroSense this year in Turku, Finland, and we will also be at Drink Japan in Tokyo. So those are the two next major conferences that we're going to. But you know, one of the one of the groups that I don't think that we connect with enough are individuals starting new upstart CPG brands, the next generation of CPG brands. And so, you know, I think that we can do a better job of reaching out to them and that we could do a better job of letting them know that that we're here and that we're interested in them, because I think that you know the next generation of food and beverage products may or may not come from the multinationals. There's legitimate competition, there's great ideas being developed. and you know we would love to connect with the the entrepreneurs that, that are starting their journey. and if we could help them get their product into a great shape before they launch, before they first go to market, I think that that, you know, I think it, it helps us create a better tasting world for everyone.
0: So Jason, an amazing story, amazing tenacity, amazing technology. I'm grateful for you to have shared your story with my audience. And I do wish you amazing success and be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, the CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate